Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Judge not that you be not judged is among the best known and least understood of the sayings of Jesus. Virtually in the same breath, he tells us, Do not cast your pearls before swine, which requires us to judge, lest we be judged. So which is it, judge or judge not? It's a fact of life that we are all judging all the time, even when we decline to judge, for that in itself is a judgment call which will be righteous or unrighteous, fair or unfair, wise or unwise. Not only are we always judging, but judging is one of our highest privileges and responsibility as the images of God. The question is not whether we will judge, but how we will judge. Will we reflect God's character and be good judges, or will we reflect our own fallen character and be bad judges? Jesus is telling us how to judge righteously, that is, how to judge like God judges. One of the things that stands out about God, the judge of all, is that while He brings all things into judgment, He is not judgmental. We all know the difference. And we are to be the same way, always exercising judgment, but never being judgmental. Another requirement to being a good judge is accurate perception and perspective, neither of which we have as sinners unless we look first to God's Word and second at our own lives before we begin holding up others to the lens of judgment. This is where we must begin if we, like God, would be good judges. And Jesus warns us that we will be judged on how we judge, for that is one of our highest callings. Painters are judged on how they paint, musicians on how they play, and judges on how they judge. I hope this sermon will help you get a biblical perspective on judging, and that as a result you will be a good judge, like your Father in heaven. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we'll be considering... Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, which appear at the beginning of chapter 7 of Matthew. So we will be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bring these words of Jesus to us today by the power and the understanding of the Holy Spirit that we might understand your word, understand it very clearly, that we might have hearts and wills that are inclined to do your word, and that by the Spirit you would cause a new found obedience and faithfulness to come upon us, that we would fulfill your word and so be to your glory and be the light of the world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I've entitled this sermon, How to Be a Good Judge. How to Be a Good Judge. And that may seem strange in as much as the first thing Jesus says is, Judge not. But you don't have to look very far at all to realize that Jesus is not saying that we should refrain from all judging. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, the very next verse after our text, Jesus says this, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Who are the dogs? Who are the swine? Jesus is saying that some people are dogs, some people are swine, and we have to judge in order to know, in order to carry out what Jesus is commanding us to do. And a few verses after that, Jesus will tell us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Who are the false prophets? How can we tell them if they look like sheep? Again, again, we must judge, and we must judge with penetrating discernment. In John chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus tells us to judge with righteous judgment, which means that if we don't judge at all, we are violating Jesus' command. And I could go on at length, but suffice it to say that Jesus and the apostles require us as Christians to exercise judgment. They require us to judge. Church discipline would be a good example, and that is something that both Jesus and the apostles teach and command. So the point is this. Jesus and the apostles require us to judge, but they also require us to judge righteously and in a godly manner, which means that we must not judge in many of the ways that come most natural to us as fallen human beings. So we see that Jesus is not saying, don't judge at all. So what is he saying? What does he mean by judge not? Well, the Greek word for judge is very much like our English word judge, in that it has many shades of meaning depending on how it is used and the context in which it is used. Now, if you think about it, our word judge can mean several different things. It can mean a personal determination or a personal decision, as in, I judge it to be the best option for me. It can mean a formal legal adjudication, as when we say, we'll let the court judge that matter. It can also mean condemnation, as when we say, that man is going to be judged severely for robbing that bank. There we mean condemn. And the Greek word for judge carries those exact same meanings depending on how it is being used. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I judged not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There Paul uses judged to refer to his personal decision, his personal determination of what was right. When Paul is arrested, he ends up appealing to Caesar, telling the local authorities who were up to no good, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. There Paul uses judge to refer to the proper function of a court of law. But Paul uses judge to mean condemn when he tells the Thessalonians, God will send those who are disobedient to Jesus a strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may all be judged 
who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. Their judge means condemn. And it's in this latter sense, the meaning of condemn, that Jesus is using the word when he says, judge not, that you may not be judged. He's saying, condemn not. Do not have a condemnatory attitude toward others that you yourself may not come under condemnation. Now, the Bible makes it clear several different times in the New Testament that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 14. He also talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So, refraining from forming any judgments regarding others during our lifetimes, aside from being impossible, will not exempt us from standing before the judgment seat of Christ. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to see not whether we are saved or not saved, but as Paul says, the only foundation that any Christian can have is Christ himself. Anyone with the foundation of Christ is saved, but then there becomes the matter of how do we build on the foundation of Christ? Do we build on it with gold and silver and precious uh, jewels? That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or do we build on it with wood, hay, and stubble, uh, stuff that doesn't belong on that foundation? We all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we will not escape the judgment seat of Christ by just saying, I'm not forming any judgments at all during my lifetime. That's not going to work. Um, what Jesus is saying in our text is what Paul is getting at in Romans 14 when he chastises the Roman Christians for condemning their brothers and sisters in Christ for what they ate or did not eat. He says, why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? Notice he's using the word judgment there to mean holding a brother in contempt looking down on them, disdaining them, condemning them. Why um, do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul is not admonishing the Roman Christians for exercising judgment or discernment toward their brethren. He is admonishing them for having a condemnatory spirit and a despising spirit toward their brethren. So, when we have the understanding of how the Greek word judge is used, we have the, put it in context of what else Jesus teaches and what the apostles teach. We put all that together and we come back to Jesus' words here in context. We see that Jesus is not telling us not to judge. Rather, he is telling us how to judge. He is telling us how to be good judges rather than bad judges. And to understand the significance of this, we need to understand a very important but little acknowledged theme in Scripture. It's something we need to get in focus and have in mind before we proceed. And that is this, the connection between judging and our calling as sons and daughters of God who is the great judge. The connection between our judging and our status as sons and daughters of God the great judge. As images of God, that is to say, as the children of God, we are called to reflect God in the earth, which means we're called to reflect both his character and his functions as the king. And so Psalm 8 says this, 
that man was crowned with glory and honor and made to have dominion over the works of God's hands with all the things of earth under his feet. That's what we were created for. We're called to be his vice regents over the earth and all the creatures of the earth. We're called to reflect his kingly functions. We're also to reflect in those functions God's character. Uh, and this is something that Jesus is restoring us to through his work. And so when Christ ascended to heaven, we're told in Revelation 5 that the saints sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us, listen, have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. That is all part of of Christ's redeeming and saving work. Now, this is what Psalm 82 is talking about when it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, we may think initially that he's talking about angels. He's talking about angels as gods, the congregation of the mighty. But it becomes clear both from this psalm and also from the fact that Jesus quotes and interprets this psalm in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, that God here is talking about His own people. His own people are the congregation of the mighty. His own people, He here is calling gods. How long will you judge unjustly, He says, and show partiality to the wicked? And He goes on to say, You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men. Now, he is not there saying that we're divine like God is divine. He's not saying the, the biggest uh, ontological or metaphysical gap that you can have is the gap between the self-sustained eternal God, the creator, and us as creatures, all creatures. That gap is never going to be bridged. But we all called upon to reflect him. Now, Jesus makes it clear here that he's talking about his people. He says in John chapter 10, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? And he's quoting Psalm 82. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came? Whom did the word of God come? It came to God's people. So we see that this idea of uh, God calls us gods with a little g, meaning that we reflect his divine character and his functions, and notice what he starts talking to them about. He starts talking to his people about judging. Because that is one of the highest callings of a king. Is to judge, administer justice, administer equity, administer discernment and righteousness to the people. And that's one of the highest callings that we have as God's people. That doesn't mean we're all going to occupy the civil office of judge. It doesn't mean we're all going to sit in the courthouse and sentence criminal defendants and rule on legal cases. But what it does mean is that one of our highest callings as the sons and daughters of God is exercising godly judgment about all the different things that God calls us to face and do as we proceed through this life. And God there is getting on to his people. He says, you're bad judges. He doesn't get on them for judging. He gets on them for judging badly. He says, you're, you're bad judges. You show partiality to the wicked. And that's not something you should do. 
Now, all of this background explains the scripture which Chris read to us earlier, which has to do with the story of Solomon, where he prays to God for wisdom. God, uh, Solomon asked God for wisdom specifically in connection with the kingly function of judging. He says in 1 Kings 3.9, Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon is saying to God, You have called me to something. You have called me to an office to a responsibility and to a privilege that I don't have the ability to do. He says, I don't have the discernment between good and evil. I have a basic discernment, but I don't have the kind of discernment I need to do what you're calling me to do. I'm going to make a mess of this. I'm not going to reflect your character as I try to reflect your office. And so he asked God for wisdom, and, that, and then God gives him great wisdom. And then, of course, we have the illustration of the two women who claim the same baby. And we see there what penetrating judgment does. He's seeking equity. He's seeking, he's seeking uh, fairness. He's seeking justice and truth. And he has to penetrate past the smoke screens of people and their motives. He has to discern the motives of these two different women. He has to bring them out so that he can see what the truth is. So Solomon understood that being a judge doesn't mean you are a good judge. He understood that reflecting God's kingly function doesn't mean that you reflect God's kingly character. And reflecting God's character in how we judge is what Jesus is talking about in our text. Remember Jesus' running theme throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, that we are the children of the Father that through Christ we've been made, brought back into his family as his sons and daughters. What are sons and daughters supposed to do? Reflect the head of the family. Reflect the father. And so Jesus has this running theme of being like the father. That's how you glorify the father, and that's how you become the light of the world, by being like the father. And so that's his same theme here when it comes to judgment. All right, so how do we reflect God's character in how we judge? Well, the first thing Jesus tells us in verse 2 is that we're going to be judged on how we judge. We're going to be judged on how we judge because that's how you judge a judge. Artists are judged on how they paint, musicians on how they perform, and chefs on how they cook. Each one is judged according to their calling. As those who are created in the image of God, one of our highest callings is judging, as we have seen. How do you judge a judge? By how they judge. You judge a judge by how they judge, and that's what Jesus is saying to us in verse 2. In the Greek, it reads more like this. For as you judge, you will be judged, and as you measure, you will be measured. He's not simply saying that whatever standard you decide to come up with is the standard that God's going to use toward you. Now, we do know the principle that the Bible tells us that judgment will be without mercy for one who has shown no mercy. We know that. That's a true principle. We also know the principle that uh, how, as you measure it out to other people is how other people are going to tend to measure it back to you. 
You know, if you cut other people very little slack, over time, other people are going to start cutting you very little slack. Those are all true principles of how life works. But that's not what really Jesus is getting at here. What he's getting at here is that you judge a judge by how they judge. And we've all been called to be judges, which is another way of saying we've been called to be mature. This is what it's getting at in Hebrews, where it says that those who are mature have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's the same thing Solomon was talking about. Have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What this means when he talks about having senses trained is that judgment, good being a good judge, exercising judgment, is not only a science, it's an art. It's an art. You can't put it all down in an equation. And those who are mature in Christ have their senses trained. They can sense, they know, they've seen it before, they can discern good and evil at a high level. And that's what we're going to be judged on. You judge a judge by how they judge. So, um, he wants us to realize we cannot avoid thus judgment by simply refraining from judging. Now, let's say that you have a judge and you have Ted Bundy, who was convicted of murdering, raping and murdering a number of women and who confessed in, in his confession right before his, uh, his, uh, he went to the electric chair in Florida, he strongly intimated that he had raped and murdered over 100 women a lot that, that they never found. Um, so you have a judge, Ted Broadley is brought before this judge. And the judge's response is to say, judge not. Do you have a good judge? No, you don't have a good judge. And that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying our, one of our highest callings is exercising judgment and toward others, and that is one of the main ways that we will be judged when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So, what are the characteristics then of good judges? Well, Jesus doesn't give us an exhaustive list in this text, but he does give us a starting point. He gives us a couple of the characteristics of good judges. First of all, Good judges, and keep in mind, a good judge is one who reflects the Father. It's one who judges like the Father. Good judges exercise judgment, but are not judgmental. That is what Jesus is getting at in verse 1. Judge not, have not a condemnatory spirit that you will not come under condemnation. Good judges exercise judgment, but they are not judgmental. Now... If we say of another person, that person exercises judgment. Say, tell me, tell me about this person. Well, that person exercises judgment. We all understand we're complimenting that person. We're saying they live their life well. They see things accurately. They see things with wisdom. They exercise judgment. But we also know that if we say of another person that they are judgmental, we're not complimenting them. We're criticizing them. And the difference between a person who exercises judgment and a person who is judgmental is not that one judges and the other doesn't. Because both of those people are judging all the time. 
The one who exercises judgment is judging all the time. The one who is judgmental is judging all the time. It's just that one is a good judge. One judges rightly, righteously, as Jesus would say. The other one is a poor judge. To exercise judgment is to be like God the Father. To be judgmental is not, is to be unlike God the Father. God the Father is the great judge who brings everything into judgment, we're told in Scripture. And yet, God is not judgmental. God brings everything into judgment, and yet God is not judgmental. God condemns all the wicked, and yet God is not condemning. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's Ezekiel chapter 33. Listen to this. This is the great judge. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Again, we already decided that a judge who's faced with a, a serious criminal and, and refuses to exercise judgment, claiming judge not, is not a good judge. Okay, that's one judge who's not a good judge, one who refuses to exercise judgment when it needs to be exercised. But also, let's imagine you have another judge who just gets off on sending people to prison or sending them uh, to the electric chair. Now, we're, we're not saying they don't deserve it. Let's say they do deserve it. But finds personal pleasure in the whole process of condemning somebody and sending them off so that when there's no cases being brought before them, he's talking to the cops and saying, come on, let's get some cases in here. I can't wait to get to the courthouse today and send some people. It'll just make my day. Well, you know, something's wrong with that judge. Even if they're judging people who need to be judged, something's wrong with that judge. Because condemning somebody ought to be a sad affair, even when it needs to happen. Putting Ted Bunny in the electric chair even though it's the right thing to do, ought to be done with a great deal of sadness. We ought to be like the Father. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. A good judge, judge knows that condemnation is necessary, but does not take pleasure in it. And this is what Jesus is getting at. We, one of our natural things as fallen human beings, is that we often take pleasure in condemning another person. We often take pleasure in finding fault with others. That makes us very much unlike God. It makes us very much bad judges. Now, why do we do this? Why do we like to find fault in a lot of settings? Why do we like to condemn, even if it's just in ourselves, or maybe we just talk to other people about it. The reason why, this is something that C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity. The reason why we often like to find fault with others and we often like to condemn them is basically because we're proud. And remember, proud does not mean conceited. It doesn't mean arrogant. It doesn't mean believing you're better, uh, you know, on top of the world. Pride in the Bible simply means that you're preoccupied with self. So a prideful person can be somebody who's uber-confident, 
I'm the life of the party and so forth, and I'm better than everybody. They can be uber arrogant, and a prideful person can be an uber, woe is me, I'm a worm, nobody likes me. I'm not going to the party because nobody will talk to me. Uh, both of those people are preoccupied by self, and so in the scriptures, both are proud. So C.S. Lewis says that we are, by nature, as fallen creatures, preoccupied with our selves. And that means that there's a little voice in us in every situation. There's a little voice in us saying, what about me? Constantly. What about me? Something good happens for somebody we know. Okay? And so outwardly, we're happy for them. We're happy for them. They got a big promotion. Something great happened for them. It didn't happen for us. Outwardly, we know we're supposed to be happy for them. I mean, what kind of person would we be if we weren't happy for them? We're happy for them. We rejoice with those who rejoice, right? But if you're honest, you know that oftentimes there's a little part of us that feels bad that this good thing happened to them and it didn't happen to us. That's that little voice in us saying, what about me? What about me? They got the big promotion. What about me? There's a little part of us that's not rejoicing that they had this good thing happen to them. And when something negative happens uh, to a person that we know, to a brother or sister, the, the closer they are to us, the more likely it is for this to occur. Uh, they, they lose their job. It doesn't mean they did something wrong, they get laid off, something happens, something, some kind of setback, some kind of a trial or something comes. And of course, we're supposed to weep with those who weep. What kind of person would we be if we didn't? And so we commiserate. But oftentimes there's a little part of us that is not altogether sad because it makes us feel a little bit better that it didn't happen to us. Again, the little voice, what about me? And that makes us seek th- that, that natural state of being that we have apart from Christ and apart from God makes us seek to derive our sense of well-being in relation, in comparison to the people around us. And the way that we have a sense of well-being is when we feel superior to others. A good thing happens to us, it doesn't happen to them. Something negative happened to them, didn't happen to us. When something good happens to them, doesn't happen to us, we don't feel superior, and the little part of us often feels bad. Now, this is what this desire to have a sense of well-being by feeling superior to others is what makes us love to find fault and to condemn. And that makes us quick to judge, quick to condemn. God, on the other hand, is sure to judge, but He is not quick to judge. God is sure to judge, but He is slow to judge, because He finds no pleasure in the condemnation of the wicked. God is sure to judge righteously, which means precisely that He is slow to condemn, and He is quick to forgive. Listen to what it says in Nehemiah 9, and and this language is repeated many, many times throughout the Bible. It's very similar language. You are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and have not forsaked your people. So God is quick to forgive. 
He's quick to be gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's slow to judge. He's slow to condemn. He's abundant in kindness. He does not forsake his people. He remains loyal. So to be good judges, we have to be the same way. We have to reflect the character of the Father. So that's the first trait that Jesus tells us of good judges. They exercise judgment, but they are not judgmental. So we want to be a people like God who exercise judgment, but we are not judgmental. The second characteristic of good judges that Jesus talks about in our text is that good judges have good perception and good perspective. Good perception and good perspective. And that's what he's talking about in verses 3 through 5. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? You don't consider the plank in your own eye. Obviously, you see the speck in your brother's eye, as small as it is. You don't see the plank in your own eye, as big as it is. And so you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. But you've got this big plank in your own eye, which you don't see. Jesus says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't say there's no speck in your brother's eye. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that you have no uh, uh, cause or function in helping your brother get the speck out of your eye. That's not what he says either. He assumes here that there is a speck in your brother's eye. He assumes here that you have some kind of a godly role in helping your brother get that speck out of their eye. His whole point here is that you can't do it with a plank in your eye. You have to see. You have to see. And, and if, you, if you've got a plank in your own eye, you can't see. You lack both perspective and perception. A good judge has to see the truth. You can't render a righteous judgment if you don't know what the truth is. You have to get to the facts. That's what Solomon is doing with the, with the two women. He's getting to the facts. And to get to the facts, to see the truth, we have to have good perception, good eyesight, and we have to have a good perspective. If you think about it, in, in cases that come up, uh, sometimes they will talk to different witnesses. Sometimes the witness's testimony is diminished because of the fact that they could not see well. Maybe they wear glasses and their glasses got knocked off. Maybe it was dark. For whatever reason, they couldn't see well enough to really give us uh, the best testimony. Sometimes they can see just fine. What's lacking is their perspective. They didn't have a good angle on what happened. Saw it great, but they didn't have a good perspective because they were looking at the defendant's back. Okay, so you have to have good perception and good perspective to be a good judge. And Jesus is saying that when we are um, not just exercising judgment, but when we are quick to judge, when we like to find fault, when we are judgmental people, when we want to get a sense of well-being by feeling superior to our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that gives us poor perception and it gives us poor perspective, which means we cannot be good judges it means we're not going to see the plank in our own eye. And it means we're not going to be able to help a brother or sister get a speck out of their eye. So even if our intentions become good, even if there really is a problem with a brother or sister, 
even if it would be the will of God that we help them. We can't help them if we have a plank in our eye. We can't see well and we don't have good perspective on the matter. Now, Jesus tells us then that before we look at a brother or a sister, we need to look somewhere else. If we look at our brothers and sisters first, because we're always comparing ourselves to them, our, our perception is off, our eyesight is off, and our perspective is off. We're not going to be good judges. We're going to muck it all up. We're going to cause a bunch of, of problems. Because if you're messing around with somebody's eye, guess what? Very sensitive. When Paul tells us in Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, speaking and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a whole environment where we're supposed to be helping one another in the sanctification process. Okay, We're called to that. But we're messing with one another's souls. Touching a soul is like touching an eye. It's very sensitive. You really need to see what you're doing. And you really need to have good perspective. And one of the big perspectives is, of course, that we've got a lot of issues ourselves, too. So that's what we need to do because that's, that's what we're about here. So where do we have to look first before we look at one another? Well, Jesus says we have to look at ourself first. He says, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He says, you have to look at yourself first. If you're not looking at yourself first, you're not going to have the perspective or the perception that you need to, to be dealing with other people. But there's another place that we have to look that is implicit in what Jesus is saying. He's saying, okay, you have to look at your first. All right, so you want to be helping a brother or sister get a speck out of their eye, right? All right, Jesus says, okay, but you got a problem with your own eye. you got to get a plank out of your own eye. How are you going to get something out of your own eye? What do you need if you've got to get something out of your own eye? You need a mirror, right? And that's what the Word of God is. And so implicit in what Jesus is saying is that you've got, if you're going to do what he says to get the plank out of your own eye, you've got to go to the mirror, and the mirror is the Word of God. James tells us that in his epistle. He says the perfect law, the law of liberty, is a mirror. And that those who look into the mirror of God's word intently, in other words, honestly, sincerely, and constantly, they're going to get a good picture of themselves. Okay, And that's the only way you can begin to get planks out of your own eye. And that's the only way that you can be involved in the process of helping other brothers and sisters in the sanctification process. So let's consider this. We have to go to the Word of God to have a mirror so that we can get planks out of our own eye. Consider what this means. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, My judgment is righteous. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus tells us, remember we saw this earlier, judge with righteous judgment. Jesus is saying, judge like I judge, because Jesus says, my judgment is righteous. Jesus doesn't say he doesn't judge. Jesus says he judges, he judges righteously. In fact, the context of this remark is where Jesus says that the Father has committed all judgment to him. 
Why? Well, because he judges righteously. Why does Jesus judge righteously? He says, because I don't seek my own will. A person who is a good judge is a person who will judge against themselves as quickly or even more quickly than they will judge against somebody else. A good judge is somebody that will look at a situation and call it as it is righteously, even when it cuts against them. And that's what gives you the trust and the confidence that this person is godly and walking before God because they'll judge, they'll cut against themselves. But when we are looking at other people first, then we're very tempted to use judgment as a manipulation tool or as a means, uh, as a weapon sometimes. We're using it to always advance ourselves. And so if you get around somebody and you notice that no matter what the situation, no matter what principles they're calling up, it always cuts in their favor. That's not a good judge. You don't have any confidence there. And so a good judge always has themselves in the dock, in the judgment seat, as, as well as anybody else. So Jesus says, my judgment's righteous because I do not seek my will, but the will of the Father. So this means that good judges are under the will of God. What's forefront to a good judge is not their will. What's forefront to any good judge is God's will. And that means God's will for me first, and then going out into the world. In James 4, James says, Do not speak evil of or judge, that is, condemn a brother. Don't speak evil of. In other words, notice what he's saying. Notice what is he saying judgment is. Speaking evil of a brother. You know, gossip, slander, so forth. You know, he's saying that's a form of judgment. So there's a lot of people in this world who will bring up the judge not thing, right? Usually when people bring up judge not, it's when judgment's starting to come their way. That's when the judge not comes up, right? Uh, sometimes they'll bring up judge not just because uh, perhaps some judgment is called for and they just don't want to deal with it. But the same people who claim to be judge not people will often go through life continually talking about other people behind their back and speaking evil of them. James says this judge not person is judging all the time, and they're judging with wicked judgment. So James says if you speak evil or a brother, you're judging a brother, and he says when you do that, you're judging the law instead of being a doer of the law. Now notice what he's saying. It's very close to what Jesus is saying. A good judge is underneath the will of God, not above it. Where do we find the will of God? We find it in the Word of God, what James calls the law of God. He calls it the law of liberty. He, this is the mirror that he talks about. He says that a good judge is under God's Word, under God's law. That's where a good judge is. But if you're judging in a way that you're not supposed to judge, now you're not under God's Word anymore. You're not under the law. You're above it. You're judging it as well as the person that you're speaking evil of. So good judges are under the will of God. Good judges are under the law. They're not above it. Jesus in Matthew 23 condemned the Pharisees for being bad judges. He said, you ignore the weightier matters of the law. What are those weightier matters? Justice, mercy, 
faith. We often see justice and mercy being opposite. That's just not the way God sees them. He sees them going together. He says the weight of the matters of the law is justice, mercy, faith. In other words, faithfulness, loyalty to God and to his people, uh, compassion, fairness, commitment, all of those things. So Jesus is saying, see, we normally think of a person who is uh, into the law. How do you normally think of a person if we say about this person, they're into the law? What are you immediately going to think about that person? Do you think they're a righteous judge? If we hear they're into the law, we're probably going to think they're judgmental, right? Isn't that what we associate? We associate it that way because of the Pharisees who said, basically, we are the law. The law is us. That's what they said. That's how into the law we are. And we know that they were very judgmental people. But Jesus is telling us that they were not into the law. They put themselves above the law. They were not underneath the law. Jesus says, if you're into the law, this is what you're going to get from the law again and again and again. You're going to get justice. You're going to see mercy. You're going to see loyalty. You're going to see faithfulness. You're going to see compassion. That's what you're going to take away over and over and over again. And if you're not getting that, from the Word of God again and again and again. Jesus says, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. The next place we look after we look into the mirror of God's Word, of course, as we're coming back to what Jesus said, is we look at ourselves. It's a mirror. We look at God's Word. We look into that mirror. We place ourselves under His Word. We see for the justice, the mercy, the truth, the faithfulness that he calls for in his law. And that's what shapes us. And the first thing that we ought to do and feel as we look into the mirror of God's word is we ought to feel convicted ourselves about how we fall short. Our, our minds should not run, first of all, to other people, but to ourselves. That is one of the things that makes a good judge in a fallen world. How can a judge sentence some young man, teenager, maybe for doing something really wrong, if this judge as a fallen person knows that they did some things that they weren't proud of at that age? Is that something that the judge should have in the back of their minds? Does that keep them from exercising judgment? No, it shouldn't. But it ought to make it not a happy affair, and it ought to make them, in administering justice to that young person, even though they may hit them hard, they should be seeking their good. And that is what God does for us. So, as takeaways, then, from this sermon, understand that God is calling each one of you to be His image, to be His son, to be His daughter, and one of your highest functions is being a judge exercising judgment all through life. It's impossible not to. You either exercise it well or you exercise it poorly. You're a good judge or you're a bad judge. And so when you want to be a good judge, you want to be like God, which means that you're slow to condemn. You're quick to pardon. It means that you don't get off on condemning somebody even when they deserve to be condemned. It means that it is a sad affair. It means that you look first to the Word of God you place yourself under His will. You place yourself under His law. And then you look at your own life first. 
Then and only then are you a good judge. Then and only then are you equipped to have the perception and the perspective and the right motives to be of assistance to a brother or sister who really does have something in their eye. And you know, if we've got something, in a, when you've got something in your eye, is that something that you can easily ignore? No, it's not. The only reason why we can metaphorically ignore things very easily in our eyes, spiritually speaking, is just because we've been numbed. Okay, we're all in the business of getting all the stuff out of our eyes that doesn't belong there. But we have to be qualified. So this week, commune with God in His Word. Understand that when you go to His Word, you're not simply reading a book. You are communing with God. Jesus makes it clear that He will be with us and commune with us. One of the ways is through His Word. So when you go to God in His Word, even if you only have a couple of minutes... You ought to have a very short prayer. Thank God for being God. Thank Him for saving you. And ask Him to commune with you through the Word and by the Spirit so that He is fellowshipping with you by the Word and by the Spirit. And so that you see God, you come to see God as He is. That's the only way you can see yourself as you are. He convicts you of your sin. Ask Him to do that. Say, Lord, convict me of my sin. Convict me of my blind spots, the spots I don't see. But, but as you convict me, don't just squash me. Make me strong at the same time. That's what God says. That God, it says that the Word of God, He breaks our bones, but He binds us up. And so there is a way to commune with God through His Word where you become horribly convicted of something, and at the same time, you're encouraged. You're encouraged. And you're thankful that God has shown that to you. And He's showing you, I'm bringing you out of this. I'm not leaving you in this. So you're convicted, and at the same time, you're encouraged. And that's what you want. So commune with God this week in the Word. And ask Him to show you your life. Uh, Ask Him to show you the things He wants you working on, the planks you need to get out of your eye. And ask Him to make you a blessing to others, as you may truly see um, different sins and faults that they need to come out of. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.